Please turn with me to Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. You can also read along on page 7 of your bulletin. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. This is the word of the Lord. You have to excuse me a little bit. Uh, it fell under the weather uh, the last day. <clears throat> I woke up this morning around 3 in the morning and um, I realized I lost my voice. So um, it was a little bit too late to ask somebody else to take my place today. So for those of you who are new or visiting, this is not my normal voice. Um, and uh, for those of you who are here, I just uh, apologize for um, putting you through at least uh, the next half hour or so um, with um, the hoarseness. <clears throat> I hope it's not too distracting. Um, I promise that the text is an amazing text, and I hope that you'll draw from it at least what I drew, the power of what I drew from it. Um, the passage we're looking at, let me just give you a little bit of a background. The Israelites, they were freed from slavery in Egypt. And they've been wandering in the desert around 40 years. And this passage is taking place in the wilderness while they were wandering. Now, you need to know that while they were wandering, they never lacked anything. God's people never lacked anything. When they were hungry, God gave them manna. He provided food for them. But over time, the people grew impatient. The text says here that they detested the food. So God sends venomous snakes who bit them, and many of them died and a lot of people say, well, this is why I don't like the God of the Old Testament. This is why I don't like the God of the Bible. He seems so vengeful. He seems so almost hurtful. Why did he have to send these venomous snakes? I mean, they just got tired of eating the same food over and over again. It's so disproportional. I'm going to submit to you that it's not disproportional. And we're going to see that right here. And we're going to, we're going to briefly walk through seven things. Seven things we're going to see here, it's like when you go to a hospital because of an emergency, that's what we're going to walk through. We're going to walk through the diagnosis, the tests, the family history, the symptoms, the preps for a procedure, the cure, and then our prescription. The diagnosis, the tests, the family history, our symptoms, the preps for a procedure, the cure, it's an everlasting cure, and then our prescription. First, we're going to look at the diagnosis. The diagnosis is sin. In verses 4 and 5, God rescued Israel. He was protecting them. He gathered them at Sinai, gave them the law. He led them through the desert with his own presence, a pillar of fire, the Shekinah presence, the Shekinah glory of God. When they were hungry, he provided them with manna. It was like bread. Every morning, it was sufficient for the day. 
It represented the power and the provision and the grace of God, but it also represented his nearness to them, his intimacy with them. He was like a shepherd over sheep, a father who cares for his children. But the people rejected the manna. They said, this is miserable. We detest this miserable food. That's what they said. In verse 4, they grew impatient, and this is the problem of sin. Until the last century, you see, the average intellectual for over 100 years said that human beings are inherently good. And so the reason why we have wars and the reason why there's racism and, and the reason why there's violence is because of a lack of education and, and because of poverty. But there are two major problems with that argument. One, think about this. <clears throat> the 20th and 21st centuries is considered the most advanced culture educationally, socially, economically, culturally, um, scientifically, and yet the 20th and 21st century is considered the most violent generation in the history of the world. So then it can't be because of a lack of education or a lack of uh, a social or cultural conditioning or because of a lack of economics or science, you see that? But secondly, think about this, and it's clinical, it's logical. When you experience symptoms, it could be nothing. It could be something really, really minor, or it could be deadly. I get frequent migraines. I don't know if you with me here, and many people here may um, suffer from migraines. I average about two to three migraines a week. And they're brutal. These migraines are brutal. A headache may mean that you're not sleeping well, or maybe you're not eating well. But it could also mean that you have a tumor. You see that? The Bible says that there are signs that on the surface, they may not seem that bad, but on the inside, it can be a monster. It's called sin, and it's grave. It's deadly. And it's the reason why God treats us so seriously. Now, we say, well, I mean, they were just young. We say, oh, it's just natural. We say, well, I mean, they were just grumbling. What were they grumbling about? Verse 5, there was no bread. There was no water. They couldn't stand the food that they were eating. They detest this miserable food. It doesn't seem that serious. It's like a migraine. But an expert doctor knows the difference between a headache and a tumor. Why is sin serious? The nature of sin, you've got to think back to the first sin. The nature of sin is this. All the way back in Genesis, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, the nature of sin is this. Nothing will ever be good enough. Adam and Eve, they are in paradise. Paradise wasn't good enough for Adam and Eve. In paradise, while in paradise, they were questioning the wisdom of God and the goodness of God. Which means that no matter where you are, sin will always make you discontent. Nothing will ever be enough. Not your job, not your circumstances, not your home, not your family, not your church, nothing. And so we got to run some tests. God runs some tests. Verse 6, he sends these venomous snakes. In Hebrew, that word snake here is called saraph. It's where you get the word seraphim the flaming ones. Angels were sometimes called seraphim because they appeared fiery. But these were fiery snakes. And it's not snakes that were coming down. These snakes were on fire, but they had a venom. They had a fiery venom. Translated, they were venomous snakes. 
So if you got bit, one of the symptoms was that you had a thirst. It developed a thirst in you, a fever that like a fire, it wasted away, consumed your entire body until you, eventually you died of dehydration. It's one of the most painful ways to die. I don't know if you know this. Dehydration. It's like there's an internal fire. They say that if dehydration takes over your body over the course of time, there's like an internal fire that's burning in you like hell. Hell is often referred to as a fire because it's where your thirsts in life are never fulfilled. Now, what's this text saying? This is the seriousness of sin. We're always discontent. We're always ungrateful. We're always dissatisfied. Deep inside, there's a venom. It's like a fire in our souls, and it's insatiable, and it's causing a spiritual thirst, a spiritual fever that's destroying us, eating away at us, it's consuming us. It's why these fiery serpents, it was a test, and it's totally proportional because God was showing these Israelites, God was showing us an accurate picture on the outside what's actually really going on in our hearts on the inside. There's a thirst, a spiritual longing, a spiritual thirst. God is not enough. You see that? And because God is not enough, we're always looking for other things to satisfy us. That's what's going on, on the inside. What are you thirsting after? I mean, a lot of us are here because you're not satisfied. Well, where does this thirst come from? We've got to go all the way back to the family history. You've got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, it begins with another serpent, a serpent in paradise. Now, remember, paradise, there's no sadness, there's no disease. You can do anything you want. And a serpent asks Eve, well, anything? You can do anything? Eve says, okay, well, there's this tree. You can't take the fruit from this tree. You see, sin isn't just disobedience. The serpent essentially is asking, are you okay with this? Are you satisfied with this? So Eve is looking at this tree, and it's pleasing to the eye, and it seems useful. That's what the text says. And she's starting to think, is God keeping something good from me? God says he's out for my best. He's got my best interests in mind, but is he really? I mean, this thing looks good. Is he keeping it from me? Maybe he's withholding things from me. Underneath our disobedience, there's a fundamental dissatisfaction with God's rule in our lives. And so what happens is there's this distrust that's building in us. Underneath our disobedience, there's a fundamental dissatisfaction with God's rule over our lives, and we start to distrust him. Look at ourselves. We're always dissatisfied with ourselves, our bodies, the way we look when you look in the mirror. We hate ourselves. There's a lot of self-loathing. Look at your homes. We're always down about our living circumstances, our situations. When you look at your careers, you hate your job. You're battling your job, what you make. You hate your salary. Just years ago, if you're going to community group, you've been asking people to pray that you get this job. Now you've got this job, and now you're praying that you find another job. That's how it works. We're never satisfied, you see? Today, that's how we think about our girlfriends. That's how we think about our boyfriends. Sadly, it's how we think about our families and our homes. Here's the reality. You could have the best spouse. You could have the best home. You could have the best job. You could be the most beautiful, well-figured person in the world, and it won't matter 
Because with your heart, even paradise won't be enough. Yeah, circumstances can influence you. Circumstances can contribute towards your happiness, of course. But the problem is, we're making these things the source of our joy. We're making them the source of our happiness forever. And they're not meant to be those things. They can't be those things. And we know that. But we've chosen to believe what we believe to be an elegant solution in our lives. Instead of surrendering to God, who is really the true source of our joy, he is joy, he is satisfaction. Instead of surrendering to him as king, we, in, we end up battling God for control over our lives. And the result is we've just lost control. We thought by, it would make us more human by discovering ourselves. Eve, he's saying, well, if I abandon this, God doesn't have my best interests in mind. I can be more of myself when in actuality, it actually makes you less of yourself. We think by, by abandoning God and pursuing the things that we want, our thirst, if I can just have that one thing in our lives, it's going to fix us when in actuality, it actually makes you more broken. And so what happens is Adam and Eve, they're driven out of the Garden of Eden. So there's this dissociation from God, a dislocation from their true home, an alienation from each other as well. And they were blaming each other. They were blaming God. Where there was once complete security and safety and just complete security in their approval in God, now there's a longing. There's a thirst. I need approval. I need security. I need safety. There's this longing, and it's feverish. And because you're on your own, now you're overworking for it. And there's consistent insecurity in your life. And you're distrusting of other people. Sometimes we're distrusting of ourselves. We're distrusting of God still. And there's fear. We're afraid because we know it's an unsafe world we're in. And we grow very impatient because we're not getting the things that we want, when we want it, how we want it. We're always discontent. And we're grumbling, constantly working. We're enslaved by these desires to find security and safety, approval through our, through our careers and through our relationships and through our pedigrees and our love lives. We tend to focus on the disobedience of sin as an act. We tend to focus on these things as an act when we should be paying more attention to the insidious discontent that sin produces before we even commit a single act of sin. Sin distorts things, even good things, the best of things in our lives, and creates discontent way before you commit a single act of sin. That's what sin does. Verse 5, you know, the people are saying, you know, I hate, we hate manna. We hate this stuff. They were starving in the desert. You got to remember, they're in a desert. There's no life in the desert. We hate this manna. We had it better in Egypt. Really? You had it better in Egypt? You were slaves in Egypt. How can you say that? It's because sin makes you so discontent. It distorts your view of reality. It distorts your view of yourself. It distorts your view of life. What is good? The serpent tempts Eve in, in Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> I mean, why would we disobey? It's because of the distortion of sin. We believe God is holding out on us. He must not have my best interests in mind. The serpent's lie was this. God doesn't want you to have the tree because if you have the tree, if you have the fruit, You'd be like God, and Eve believed it. Why? Her sin, her distrust of God, it assassinated the character of God. God is not for me. God must not be good. So you only obey God as long as it's practical. You only obey God as long as you have time. 
You only obey God as long as the eagles aren't playing. You see that? You only obey God uh, as long as it works for you on your terms. Because if you don't believe that God is for you, then you're going to work to remain in control of your life for the rest of your life. All, life is all about who is in control. Either you believe that God is in control or you think that you are in control because you believe the lie. The reality of the fiery snakes is this. When <clears throat> the situation reveals that you are not in control, those snakes show us we are not in control. We never were in control. And you disregard that. You disregard the family history, the source of our sin. One day, you will lose any control that you have in your life. And your life will burst into a fiery hell altogether. See that? One is just a test. And if you fail that, if you, if you disregard it, if you say, you know what, if you bypass that, if you dismiss the test, your life will burst into a fiery hell. Why is hell described as a fire? It's because you're going to be thirsty forever. You're never going to be satisfied. And there's going to be grumbling and pain and just discontent for the rest of eternity, even though you had God's provision at hand. Now, there are people in this room who've said over and over when they first come in, they say, I really want to grow here. I wanted to grow here, but then I got sidetracked. Because for you, the church has become more about your horizontal relationships than about your vertical relationship with God. And as a result, God's been pushed out of the equation. In the church, God has been pushed out of the equation. You're in the wilderness. You're in the desert. You're wandering. This passage is going to show us how to come back. There's hope. Even if we're like the Israelites in the desert, and we are. I mean, is that you? We are. We can become more in an instant about what God gives us through the church than the fact that God has given us himself. And so we come to God for things in the church instead of coming to God for God. You see that? That's what the tests reveal. What are the symptoms? There are two things that it leads to. Sin leads to alienation and sin leads to suffering. First, we're going to look at alienation. Verse 4 to 5. The people, <clears throat> they speak against God and Moses. They speak against God. They speak against Moses. In other words, before the reality of sin even hit, they were already alienating themselves from the very people who loved them and cared for them and provided for them. God doesn't just, you know, God doesn't just satisfy us. God is satisfaction. And they're looking at God. They're looking at satisfaction and saying, I'm dissatisfied. They're looking at contentment, and they're saying, I'm discontent. I mean, we don't always say that blatantly here. We tend to use language like this. Somebody gives you wise advice, and you say what? Well, I feel judged by you. I feel unsupported by you. We tend to think, well, if my friends don't support me, they must not be good friends. If God doesn't agree with me, God must not exist. I mean, is that good logic? Are either of those statements good logic? By the way, there are people here, they'd rather not even open up to the wisdom of friends because they already know that they've been looking elsewhere for something that only God can give. And so their conscience and their fears intertwined, it doesn't allow them to seek wise counsel because they know they're not going to listen anyway. You see that? That's wilderness lifestyle. That's wilderness living. One of the best ways that we can know that we believe the God of the Bible is that God says things in the Bible that we just hate. 
We just dislike it. We disagree with it. It disturbs us. It challenges our character, things that we don't want to believe about ourselves. It challenges our heart and our intentions, our motives. We want to believe ourselves like scholars hundreds of years back. They want to believe that we are inherently good people. So we don't like it when our lifestyles and our hearts are challenged. Trust his word. Trust his word, because unlike the serpent, God never lies. His word never lies. We tend to dismiss community. We tend to dismiss the Bible. We tend to dismiss God when we should be clinging to community and clinging to the Bible and clinging to God. Alienation. Secondly, we're going to look at suffering. Sometimes we don't really start to see what's really hurting us, what's really destroying us until you suffer, until you start to suffer. I mean, God isn't punishing the Israelites. That's what it looks like. We're going to see otherwise. But what he's really doing, verse 6, the Lord sends these venomous snakes, and many of them die. The thirst is like a fire. It's like hell. They're dying, and they're being consumed. You see that? What is suffering? At the root, suffering is one, a revealer. It shows what you're hooked into that's killing you. When you suffer, at the root of that suffering, you tend to see what's actually that spiritual tumor that's growing. Suffering's a revealer, oftentimes. It demonstrates corrosive patterns in your life, corrosive patterns in your career or in your family, in your marriage, in your children, in your relationships. It demonstrates corrosive patterns in the way you spend money or maybe your apathy. So it reveals a tumor that's growing. But once you begin to suffer, what happens? You start to wake up, don't you? You start to wake up, there's some clarity. If it's doing what it's supposed to do, and if God, there's, there's something going on in your heart and it's actually stirring your heart, you start to wake up because, because of the consequences. There's a bite. There's pain. And you say, whoa, wait a second, I need to change. Well, how do you change? Fourthly, there are preps for the procedure. Verse 7, the suffering hits God's people. What do they say? They go back to Moses. They go back to God. They say, we sinned when we spoke against Lord We sinned when we spoke against you. Pray that the Lord will take away these snakes. There's a waking up. There's a genuine repentance. Now, when you read this passage, you say, well, it doesn't seem that genuine. They were on the verge of murdering Moses, and now they get bit by these snakes. They're scared. They're dying, and they run back, and they say, well, pray that the Lord will take this away from us. How is that genuine? It seems like they're just trying to, they're just crying because they're in pain. What is repentance? Think about it. What's the alternative? Some people can get more angry. They can say, well, this is really unfair. This is really rude. I mean, I didn't really even know that I was, I was this bad. So they start to blame God and fight one another. And, I mean, we can all relate to that. They, they start to retaliate. But these people, they didn't say that because they know the truth about themselves. They know. So the prep for the procedure is repentance. How do you know that you are ready for repentance? How do you know that you are ready, in some ways, for the cure? It's when you can admit, Lord God, I know at this point that you're not trying to ruin me. I'm suffering. It's painful. It's hard. But I know you're not trying to ruin me with the suffering. You're trying to wake me up because I've been distant for a really long time. I was the one that wasn't listening. I'm praying to you, and I was blaming you that you weren't listening when it was really me that wasn't listening. I deserve to be abandoned. It's not so much that you abandoned me. I abandoned you. 
So anything you do to me is probably justified. It's fair because the thing that's devouring me and consuming me spiritually, it's grave. Sin is that bad. I know. You've said that all my life. It's that serious. How do you know a person is repenting? They, they don't say, well, Lord, just take away the problem. But first, they say, Lord, take away the sin. We've sinned against you. We, we want to get right with you. Take away the grumbling. Take away the pride. Take away the anger. Take away my rebellion. I'm not sure what to do about the circumstances. I mean, I'm in a mess. My life is a mess. It's really, really bad. I'm suffering. It's painful. I need help. But what matters first and what matters most is that I'm coming back to you. If you notice in this passage, they stop complaining. They stopped complaining. Verse 7, before there was alienation, now they're returning to Moses. They're returning to God. They see the connection between their suffering and their sin. And, and where they normally, they were just grumbling previously. Now, I want to make it clear, not all suffering is a result of sin. Not all suffering is caused by specific sin in your life. But if you think about it, if sin becomes a part of your lifestyle, there are definitely long-term consequences, and they cascade. If you live a life of lies, the lies will eventually catch up to you. It's going to ruin you. It's going to ruin your family. It's going to ruin your reputation. It definitely breaks and ruins trust. If you live a life of malice, if you live a life of greed, it's going to ruin you. It's going to ruin your family. It's going to ruin other people. It's going to distort. Money will distort your view of self, yourself. It's going to distort your view of justice or right and wrong. Now, you may ask me, <clears throat> I don't get it. How does that ruin my family? What's the evidence of that? It's logical and it's theological. If you want to think logically, if your reputation or your wealth is more important than your relationship with God, you're going to lie. You're going to cheat. You're going to do whatever you can to justify yourself. And you don't think your kids grow up watching that? They're going to watch. Your kids, if you're a parent, you know. Your kids watch everything you do. They may be looking at some toy or watching TV. They are paying attention. You know that. They are watching every word you say, every movement you make, and they want to emulate you so badly. You don't think they're learning from the way you handle your problems? It will ruin them. It definitely will ruin them. But secondly, theologically, think about this. Sin is never contained. Sin is always spreading. You ever read the book Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, William Shakespeare? Claudius' sin, murdering his family member, who is a king, to become king, it eventually, that evil passes into Hamlet. It passes into everyone. It results in Ophelia, <clears throat> the girlfriend of Hamlet, takes her own life. It affects her father, Polonius. He's murdered. Her brother, Laertes, I believe it's his, or her brother, he dies, right? Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who are kind of fake friends of Hamlet, but they're killed. Gertrude, his mother, dies. Eventually, Hamlet dies. Everybody in the story dies. Shakespeare's point, he was very keen on this. Shakespeare's point is that sin is universal, and sin is like a disease. It's like a poison. It's like a venom. All it does is course through society and spread. It cannot be contained. It infects not just yourself, but everybody you love until there's no one left to infect. But in this passage, they return to Moses. 
They return to God. They say, we sinned. There's no more alienation. They say, pray for us. They don't say, we'll try harder. We'll do better. That's not what they say. They say, pray for us. We are helpless. We can't go anywhere with this. They're looking for rescue. They're looking for, because they know they're helpless. Well, what's the cure? In verses eight to nine, God tells Moses, put a bronze snake on a pole. Anyone who's bitten, anyone who's gonna die, they can look at that bronze snake and they'll live. Behold the snake. The snake, if you think about it, the snake was the symbol of the enemy. It's almost like an insult, a slap in the face for these Israelites. I mean, the snake is what's killing them. And now we have to look to that snake for healing? Why would God want them to look to the thing that's killing them for actual life? Expand your imagination a little bit. Imagine a snake slithering around. Everyone's just terrified. Imagine a snake just comes into this. Everyone here would just clear out to the side. Everyone's terrified. He's biting people. It's just violent, just biting people. Everyone's getting bit, and they're dying. But the only hope is what then? You've got to catch that snake. You've got to kill that snake. How's everybody going to feel better about it? Well, you've got to lift it up and let people know it's dead. You put it on a pole in those ancient times, right? You say, I got it. I own it. It's mine now. I killed it. I won When you lift it up, it means it's powerless, it's been caught, it's dead. Then everybody can look to it and say, now we're free, now we're safe, we can live, we have comfort, we have relief. The praise and the gratitude that flows from that, it naturally flows, worship naturally flows from an experience of what? An experience of power, an experience of a provision of grace, an experience of victory. And what God's saying to the Israelites here is, I'm the only one who can stop the snakes. I'm the only one who can heal you permanently of this poison. Only I have the power. You gotta put the snake on a pole, and that's looking to me. When you look to me, well, when you're looking at the snake, you're looking to me. You look to me for mercy. You look to me for grace. Look to me for healing, and they did. They trusted his word. God is saying, I am the healer. But centuries later, Jesus Christ goes even further. In John chapter 6, you see this great miracle. Jesus feeds the 5,000. And what he says in the teaching after the miracle, the miracle is never standing alone. There's always a teaching after the miracle. Jesus says after the miracle, he says, I am the bread of life. In other words, I am the power and the provision and the grace of God. I am also the nearness and the intimacy of God with you, Emmanuel, God with us. So I'm the power, and yet I'm also the intimacy, but the people rejected him. You see that? They rejected him the way they rejected manna. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking with a Pharisee, Nicodemus, at night. And in there, he explains the meaning of the snake. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, I will be lifted up. In other words, just as people looked to the snake, the snake was the curse. They were healed physically, In the same way, they're going to look to the Son of Man. They're going to look to me, to Jesus. When I'm lifted up in the same way, they're going to look to me for ultimate healing. What does that mean? It first means that Jesus Christ had to die. He had to die. He had to be lifted up like a snake in Moses' day. He had to be lifted up. To be lifted up means what? You were caught, and so he was arrested. 
To be lifted up is to say you were powerless, so Jesus emptied himself. Philippians chapter 2 says he emptied himself. To be lifted up is to say that you lost, and so Jesus gave up his spirit. He didn't, he didn't fight back. He didn't retaliate. To be lifted up is to say you were caught, you had lost, you were dead. And so Jesus Christ was crushed and crucified on the cross. Secondly, Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake, I must be lifted up. Not like the snake, just as the snake. What that means is Jesus is taking the place of the snake. What's a snake? The snake is, yes, he's a symbol of the pain, the thirst, what's killing them. It's almost like an insult. We said that in Numbers 21. But in order to really understand this, you have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden again. There is a snake, right? God promised in Genesis chapter 3, there was a curse of sin. But amidst the curse, God says, one day from Eve will come a descendant that will crush the head of the serpent once and for all. He will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent represents total, all evil, all sin. He is the deceiver, the liar, the enemy. And God says, one day I will crush all evil, all lies, all, all sin once and for all. The snake has to be crushed. So the snake represents all things evil and what evil deserves. So when Jesus says, I must be lifted up, what he's saying is, I have to die I have to be crushed, not just like the snake, but as the snake in its place. I'm the ultimate snake, in a sense. On the cross, Jesus doesn't just become the symbol of the curse. Moses lifted up just a symbol, a bronze snake. Jesus becomes the curse. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken what he's saying? is Here I'm experiencing the ultimate alienation, the ultimate suffering, the ultimate dislocation from God. God is my father. He is the center of my life. He has abandoned me. That's why on the cross he says what? I thirst. I'm longing. Because I had an intimate connection with the father, the ultimate intimate connection, and I've lost him. He has turned his back on me. And so I've lost life. And so I'm thirsting. There's a fever. I am, I'm, I'm thirsting after God. And I've lost him. And so his life is becoming a living hell. Hell is complete separation from God the Father. And so Jesus Christ on the cross, God has forsaken him. And so he's suffering the cosmic thirst of hell complete separation from God. He's being consumed. And yet, to the end, do you know? To the end, nowhere in the Gospels, nowhere in any witness accounts does it ever say that Jesus complained. He never grumbled, never complained. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah says he would be satisfied. He was actually glad. Hebrews chapter 12 says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Why? Why? What did Jesus have on the cross that gave him such satisfaction that was worth ultimate suffering and ultimate alienation? What's the answer? You. He has you. Seeing that you would be with him. Seeing that you would be with the Father. That's what gave him satisfaction. That was his joy. You know, that was his prayer before he died. John chapter 17, we called it the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He prays, Father, that, that we would be with him. 
Not just presently in that circumstance. He was talking about in glory, that we would be with him, that we would be reconciled to the Father, that we would have the same access that Jesus has, that we would have the righteousness of Jesus. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin. God made him who had no curse to become the curse. He became the snake so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And to the degree that you believe that Jesus suffered what he didn't deserve so that we wouldn't suffer what we did deserve, there's the real healing. There's the end of your thirst. To the degree that you trust that Jesus suffered the ultimate fire of hell, the ultimate thirst for us, then all of your other thirsts, all those little longings, they're just mini thirsts. You don't have to grumble. You know that God is for you. You know that God isn't withholding anything good from you. You can trust his word. Jesus says, then you have living water. Your thirsts are quenched ultimately, so what you long for, you know. You don't need it. God is making you wait, or God is going to give it to you later, or God is not withholding it good from you. He's actually saving you, rescuing you. You see that? Lastly, so we can end this today, what's the prescription? How do we apply it? God tells Moses, I'm just going to cut this short. God says to Moses, let them look at the snake. How much work is required for you to look at something? It takes no work. You just need new eyes. You just need eyes. If you have eyes, you can see. When you hear the gospel, is it beautiful to you? Does it get you? Does it move you? When you hear the gospel, is it true? Because if it's true and it moves you and it gets you, then you see the beauty of Christ. You just behold. He's easy to see. He's beautiful. You just behold. When you behold, it takes no work. To behold Jesus is to trust in his perfect record, who he is, and then to trust in his perfect work on the cross, what he did. And when you trust who he is, and you trust what he did, then you're beholding Christ, the beauty of Jesus and the work of Christ for you on the cross. And when you do that, when you trust in that, that's a healing love. Are you suffering from guilt? Is guilt biting you and injecting its poison? You can be healed. Are you suffering from shame so you can't keep your head up? Maybe you've hurt family members or maybe you've dis- disappointed people in your life over years and years. Well, is that biting at you and injecting its venom? The venom can stop. Where, oh, death is your sting? Jesus has defeated death. You don't think he defeats your shame? And so because he's taken on your shame, it's gone. And so that's the end of the venom. It's the end of the poison. You see that? If you're lonely, you're dissatisfied with your community, discontent with the community that you're in, you feel empty and you're dry, this is the end of the thirst because you have ultimate communion with the Father. That's got to be more important than anything you desire first. And if you have that, to the degree that you believe you have that and know that, then community can only help. It can only grow. You'll be satisfied where you are. 
this is not a sermon telling you that you got to stay in your job or stay in your, I'm not telling you to do that. You got to stay in your neighborhood, stay in your job. That's not the application. What I'm saying is, but I am questioning your discontent. I am questioning what the source of that is. I'm questioning how much you've addressed it in your life. Because it could be a venom that's coursing through and you'll never be happy. You'll never be satisfied. How do you know? Look to Christ. Let him be your ultimate contentment. Let him be your joy. How do you do that? Well, when you see that Christ is your, that you are his joy, you are what kept him on the cross, to the degree you believe that, oh, he will be your joy. He will be your treasure. He will be all richness in your life. And that will heal you. Heal you of your deepest longings. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Let that get injected into your heart, that truth, and see what it does. Let's pray together.